churning our way into hour number two. Welcome back inside the Paris Palace, high above 2919 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show, coming to you live on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app and stream all of our live local shows, including Solomon on Blast, The Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, The Jake Feinberg Show. We can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. So I can continue to enlighten peeps through cats that normally express themselves through their instrument. I get an opportunity to actually break it down with them verbally because let's face it, there's only two letters that separate music and magic. And it's an honor to bring back a friend of the program, decorated bass player and a cat who has been doing it for decades. Mario Cipollina, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hi, Jake. How are you doing? Good to hear you, brother. How are you, man? I'm doing good. You're talking about cats. and My cat's on my lap digging his claws into my knee. <laughs> yeah, no, I've had that done before, too, man. You tell the cat, yeah, so if you, he just has to, wait a, he has to wait an hour until we're done, you know? Right, yeah. Well, if you hear any yelping, it's, it's just me getting gouged. That's all. <laughs> hey, you know, I've I got to tell you, I put up an excerpt from uh, one of our interviews uh, on Facebook, and uh, the legendary uh, pianist and arranger Tom Salisbury said, my daughter took piano lessons with Mario's mother. Back, I believe that. Back in the diz, back in the day. Mm. I didn't know. Huh. You, so, you, I mean, your mom your mom had piano chops, or she was just a, a straight-ahead teacher? Serious chops. My mom was a, uh, a concert pianist in the 30s and 40s. Um, uh, she was a protege of uh, Jose Turby, who, who uh, <clears throat> after the, the bulk of his um, touring, ended up doing a lot of movies. He did... Uh, uh, quite a few movies in the forties, yeah, and uh, yeah. So she she had she had serious chops. In fact, one of my my favorite memories of my mom playing is uh, we lived up in a canyon in Mill Valley. That's where I was born and raised. My sister still lives in the same place, and in the living room, we had a very big living room. My dad built the house, and um, uh, in the living room there were two. Uh, Baldwin grand pianos dovetailed so they were right but next to each other so the, the pianists could face each other and um, uh, sometimes uh, for, for a while Nicky Hopkins was, was living with us um, when he first moved here to, to move from England to America he lived with my family for about six or eight months and while he was uh, starting to play with Quicksilver and um a number of times I'd come home from school and mom and Nikki would be playing two piano uh, uh, classical pieces together. And I'd sit up on the hill above the house and listen to the, to the, the two piano uh, concertos being played in down in the house. It was awesome. Oh, that is floating. so badass. That is, rid- yeah, that is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can, how, how, how did your brother make inroads in in England, uh, in the sense that how did, I mean, did Nicky come over with the stones and they connected that first time around? And then when he came back to the States, he crashed there. How did your brother have a connection with him? Honestly, I believe it was through Pete Sears. <clears throat> I think Pete, uh, introduced them. Um, but, uh, John had never been to England. John, uh, didn't go to England until later on when he went over with the man band. But um, so somehow they met, and Nikki was a huge Quicksilver fan, and <clears throat> this was right after the Quicksilver. Let's see, their their first album had come out, and uh, uh, and Gary Duncan left, and so they were looking to kind of re reform, you know, reinstrument the band, and um, and coincidentally, Nikki and John had met, and um, and uh, Nikki joined the band. John said, "Yeah, we're looking for another guy." <laughs> The next thing you know, they had Nicky Hopkins in the band, which was great. This is like, and your dad was a carpenter, essentially? Your mom was a pianist? I mean, your dad was a builder? Actually, no, my dad wasn't. He, uh, he originally, originally he was a, a sea captain when he was in Italy, but he when he came to America in the 40s, he, or late 30s, he started a water softening company and made a bunch of dough doing that and then moved to the West Coast and... Um, what his his career when I was a kid growing up and the, the whole time we were to, you know I was his uh, what's the right way to put it well during my childhood my dad was a realtor he sold real real he sold real estate and um, 
Uh, were, he, was were, not a, he was not a contractor at all, but he did build about three houses by himself. He, he just did it. I mean, I really, so would you say you were like kind of apprenticing under him, so to speak, or you were just like working under him? Under my dad? Yeah. No, but I was, when when he was building our house, I was about, he started building the house when I was about three, and he was working on it until I was about eight. So the only apprenticing I did was help, you know, I, you know, he'd let me carry a brick or pound a peg into the floor with a hammer or something like that, but no, I didn't, I didn't apprentice at all. Talking to Mario, talking to Mario yeah, Cipollina yeah. here. It's so so great to talk to him again. And um, you know, I just I wanted to talk to you about. Um, you're in the studio right now. We we let in with a tune called um, uh, "Fool," and uh, the fool rather. And uh, no, no, no fooling. It's called yeah. No fooling. And 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 uh, you know, can you talk about um, what still gets you off about? playing music is it meeting people in an organic fashion and connecting on that level is it cutting an album i mean you've done it all i i just want to know what still gets you off in 2016 i love the instrument i love bass i i always have um i remember distinctly the first time i heard bass and made a choice to play it was when i was one of six years old it was in first grade and they there some some symphony players came and, and um, to our school, and we were back then. You could in elementary school, you could choose an instrument and and be taught in school. And um, so these symphony players came. There was an assembly, uh, and all the kids went to the assembly room. And, and uh, on the stage, uh, all these different musicians would come and play their instrument for you know thirty seconds or a minute. And you and then they handed out you remember mimeographs that stuff that smelled really good the little paper sure they had everyone yeah everyone had a mimeographed piece of paper with uh, a drawing uh, of all these different instruments there was probably 15 different instruments that were on this piece of paper and if you when they played an instrument if you liked it you could circle it the drawing of that instrument and then uh, you could start taking lessons and i remember when the guy pulled his bow out and pulled it across the strings and the place started vibrating. I could you know, feel it and I just loved it. And to this day, Jake, when I go do sound check or sit down in the studio and plug in and start getting tones, you know, the, I'll play the first note and just feel great, great gratitude and grateful that I have that in my life. I just love the instrument. I always have. Yeah. And all the other stuff is kind of gravy. But just having that instrument in my life is... It's just it's everything. Um, can you talk about like this being in the studio, who you're playing with? I mean, I called you yesterday. You were in there. Uh, and ultimately the process of like, because, you know, it was cool. I, I went back last night. You know, I was geeked up for the interview. I was listening back to our interview. And, and you were talking about how much you were digging on improvisational music because when you it's so rewarding when you're up there with people that are that have big ears and that are listening and there's all the sharing and communication is that right. what it's, is that what it's like in the studio or does or or is there is there a micro i don't know what the right word is it just is there it, it is it, it does there is there a drag i mean can you talk is is that oh, yeah. is that can it translate over in the studio or does that only happen in the live context well Fortunately for me, and when when I've talked to you lately, um, I think I've talked to you about my friend Kenny, who's a drummer, and uh, I've I've played with a lot of drummers, but uh, Kenny just happens to be, boy, one of the best drummers I've ever heard. Period. And and um, uh, we were introduced about in two thousand nine, and ever since then. We've uh, we've never been on stage together, but we have we, we've played together regularly since we met. And we well, Kenny has a uh, a place where his drums are set up, and he's got a Pro Tools rig, so his drums are always mic'd up. And and uh, and um, so what we do is we get together occasionally, like we did yesterday, uh, and and we just sit down and and just start playing. We don't talk about what we're going to play, and we don't try and play something that we played last week or we just play and um <clears throat> and kenny it, it does something i always swore to myself someday i would do which was that i would have a studio where i could play and that i and i would record everything but you know back in the day when i made that deal with myself 
uh, recording involved tape, and tape was a, a, a real consideration. You know, as you know, the two you know two inch reels of multi track tape are you know kind of a couple hundred bucks, two hundred fifty bucks, something like that, and they record at thirty ips. You can record uh, seventeen minutes of music mm. on a reel of tape. Mm. So, so recording multi track when I t- made this deal with myself was was a an expensive proposition, and uh, and even making all the news albums, you know, we, uh, I, you know, you're always one of the things when you're recording was always how much tape do we have left? Uh, was that take good enough? Do we want to save it or not? You really thought about whether you're going to keep a track or not because it, it, you're, you're using up tape. But now uh, it, with everything going to hard drives, uh, you can record limitless you know amounts of information so kenny and i always record we've got hundreds of hours of us jamming and uh just because we can and um so uh that's that's one of the, that's probably the only time i can tell you that that i feel that there uh, i've been in a recording environment where i feel free because we always record and we don't really even think about it anymore and we just get together to play and Kenny just always pushes record before we start, and he he pushes stop when we're done. And um, other than that, with recording, it's a uh, it's very it's pretty much the polar opposite of of that. Generally, recording is um, there's a lot of technical con- technical considerations. Um, uh, generally, uh, there are com- I hate to say it, but there are somewhat commercial. Uh, Considerations that uh, uh, that involve that, that 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 are part of the equation, and therefore it takes. There's a lot more time uh, spent thinking, planning, uh, making choices, and so uh, is generally. To, by my experience, generally recording is not a free uh, environment. You know. Let's, it, it, it's it's uh, it's it's it, it, there's a lot of work involved you know yeah i don't know how to put it no i, I mean I, I i think you you did a great job i mean uh i, I you know i i to me uh i want to just read you uh this thing from george porter uh, from the meters uh, he said that um and he's talking he went to nice in france uh with professor mm-hmm. professor longhair and he met dizzy gillespie there and he was just talking about he said, in the jazz community, a backbeat, he's talking more bebop and post-bop, but in the jazz community, a backbeat wasn't as necessary because the snare drums were playing quarter notes, kind of a free kind of thing. Secondary uh-huh. secondary melodies on top of the swing thing. <clears throat> and, you know, uh-huh. I, I realized that, like, you and, and Gibson and, you know, like, I mean, Stoneground, like, I mean, in the 70s, do you distinctly remember that when the bass drum started to play a major role in the groove because you listen back to stuff when the top part of the drum kit was being used, and it was just a very, very different groove. I was hoping you could talk about, uh, you know, how you try to play off, how, how aware you are of the bass drum, and how if you try to stay away from the snare drum. Hmm. Wow. Um, well, uh, I'm very, uh, very aware of the bass drum. Obviously, I, I well, maybe not obviously, but uh, <laughs> the 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 bass and the bass drum can complement or or get in the way of one another, <clears throat> depending on you know many considerations. But <clears throat> um, for a long time, I think that when you asked about when did the bass drum become such a factor, I I, I mean, I, my guess would be. Uh, in the when uh, when dance music started becoming a a, a big consideration, and so um, bass drum in dance music is was really important, especially since you know when people would go to dance clubs, uh, the low frequencies are what you feel when you're dancing. I think a, a lot, and mm-hmm. and so they have a lot to do with dancers. Um, perspective of the music so uh an answer the simple answer to that question is when did bass drum become as important as it became i would su- suppose it would be when dance music started being up a, a commercial you know which started charting and and um so i guess that would be disco music in the 70s <laughs> Ugh. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, have you? He was talking very much about, you know, early, like you know, funk was kind of part of the lexicon. Really, you came of age right when uh, uh, that that music was coming yeah. in, uh, or that when that when that term was developed. But do you try to make right. an effort to p- play when when the drummers? playing the snare drum you're not playing off playing then playing notes then um no i don't but uh but i do like leaving holes uh, i i definitely uh you know, I, I always look for a place where i can not play because um you there's a there's as much of an impact from a note that's missing as, as that there is i think as a note that's there part you know the kind of less is more Oh no no no! I want, of... This is what I want to talk about. Is that <clears throat> did can you talk about? Because Miles had the line. It's not what you play; it's what you don't play. But I'm curious yeah. about wh- what you learned from Quicksilver going to see them in '65, or if your brother was if you could if you learned that from Quicksilver, the idea that mm. the, the, the the pockets the, the space. You said you like to leave spaces. Mm. I want you to talk about space. It's very nobody yeah, yeah. knows what space is anymore. So I mean that's yeah, right. so so riff riff on that. That's a great. That's a really good point, especially like when you see a show like The Voice or you know, oh. uh, it, it's almost like people. There's a lot of overall, it seems like there's uh, people are are playing, try to play or sing something that's going to impress somebody, and um, um, and I think that impressing people has grown to be to equate with. Uh, how many notes you can play? How you know maybe, maybe how fast or how riffy you are? And um, uh, if you, with regard to your the initial question, but my my first uh, exposure to to uh, to the criticality of a groove, honestly, I, I got to say it was listen to watching Greg Elmore play drums. The drummer for uh, oh man, dude, a man of few words, but man, talk. Yeah, I, right. I, I interviewed him, but tell me about it. What were you seeing? Well, you, I was when 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 starting up. I started that band when I was probably ten or eleven, and and soon thereafter, I started. Our family started going to shows, and one thing caught my eye was was the the greg elmore would kind of it looked like he was in a trance when he when they played so the other guys in the band are all throwing shapes and looking cool and and uh and but greg it seemed that he would pick a, a spot in the audience or on the in on the ceiling or in a wall or something he'd pick a spot and just stare at it and he would stare at that spot, while he, and it, and it was very clear that, that that was part of his process of of uh, of, of finding a and, and sticking to it. And um, I'll never forget that. In fact, I think to this day I still kind of do that to some degree. Think that I'm mean or kind of a tough guy thing when I play because I I I a lot of times I'm pretty still, but. but um, I was. I remember seeing Greg stare and just focus, and um, and uh, I still do that. And uh, and he was back in the day, you know, other bands and drummers like drummers. A lot, a lot of drummers rush. I don't know if you're aware of that, but but a lot, a lot, a lot of drummers tend to push the tempo forward. Uh, they'll they'll come out of a fill a little bit ahead of where they started, and it's it's. Um, and Greg was was a uh, a real freak about keeping the pocket where you know you know finding the the groove and staying there and not and not letting it it rush. And I think that when he was staring, as as I as I recall in conversations, I remember him saying that that was kind of part of how he would be focused on the groove and keep it there. And so Greg Greg and, and his playing and some of our conversations when I was a kid were a big part of my my reverence for the pocket. Yeah. Uh, I wish, I mean, I could talk about this for five hours, right? This is unbelievable. Really? Well, I mean, I mean, this is all I talk about. I got this, I mean, Sonny Fortune, he's, he's, I got this quote here, you know, he said, he, Rashid Ali, did you ever see Rashid Ali, by the way? I don't think so. He was, I wish I had. He, he played, yeah, no, so Rashid and Ali, he said, he, 
this is Sonny Fortune, the great horn player. He said, uh, we traveled as a duo. We traveled the world. Two of us would play one tune for an hour. The thing, that, the thing that was so amazing to me was that most of the time I had no idea I was playing as long as I was playing. We weren't, yeah. we weren't playing avant-garde, even though that's what he was associated with when he played with Coltrane. I didn't want, mm-hmm. I didn't want to play avant-garde. We were playing form. He was keeping time, and I was keeping form. We never, mm-hmm. we never abandoned that. But one of the things I found that I never could answer was, what were the people listening to? One of the things I yeah. found in myself was that TikTok time had no relevance. Sometimes I played for 25 minutes or a half hour and wouldn't even know it. I thought I had been playing for maybe 10 minutes. I never experienced that with anyone else I worked with because I never had that kind of space. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, is that I mean, is that stuff that you can go in today with the drummer? I, I, I forgot his name, but is that the Kenny. Kind of, with Kenny? I mean, can you get can you do you lose sense of TikTok time when you are just cooking the groove. Absolutely. That's one thing I really like about playing with Kenny is that, is that I I never have to think about the pocket. It just happens. It just so happens. In four four, um, the, that's a real that's a real kind of no brainer thing. People would think. But within that, within that measure, there's there are subdivisions of time, just like every, everything else in life, and and um, <laughs> uh, in in within that one beat, there are there are different locations that are you know uh, audibly still within that beat, but that are on all different sides of the beat, and and different people have a different feel for for where those where those how that time is subdivided in their in their heart in their mind, and uh, Kenny and I just happened to have the exact same uh, genetic um, predisposition for 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 how time passes musically. Not not TikTok time, but but music time. And sure. and um, we I never have to have, I never have to think about it. I can't tell you how many bands I've been in where. Where I loved the music and hated playing with the band because the drummer was pushing and pulling all the time, and it was a constant fight. And we're talking, you know, we're, we may be talking, you know, we're definitely talking milliseconds of time, but it, those milliseconds being uh, uh, can be a struggle it, it, depending on who you're playing with. And so, Kenny's one of those rare combinations. Not only does he have an insanely solid pocket that just coincidentally is is right in sync with with my pocket. Uh, but um, he's got all the chops in the world, and uh, and he also has great ears. He listens like nobody nobody else I know. Yeah, so it's a pretty, I feel pretty fortunate to have that in my life. Yeah. I tell him some kind of group, you know, because I mean, this is this is always the best part of my day when or my week or my month when I get to play with you. It's just, like heaven. <laughs> no, because the, yeah, no, I mean, I've talked to enough people in rhythm sections. Like I, I've been grooving with Tom Coster, you know, from Santana. And he was like mm-hmm. talking about, you know, there's nothing more painful than the push and pull of a rhythm section. If it's not, if it's not in sync. And, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, if you were talking to cats anywhere in the world, Mario, I mean, you know, obviously it's about forming a relationship, but, if people are like genuinely interested in creating new vocabulary and music as a rhythm section and they're not totally, they don't have, as you say, the predisposition towards the same feel or then how can they cultivate that? What are the, what are the, what, what are the ways in your life as, as a test case where it didn't sync up right away, but through what it eventually even it got to the point where you you know when you got there. Man, I'll tell you, I I I, uh, I don't want to name names. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. You don't have to do it. But what's that? You don't have to. We'll save that for the book. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> I have I have in the last uh, number of years uh, had have experienced. The, what you're talking about, where you get together with a new bunch of guys, and 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 you're not the the music's 
great and you love the people and stuff, but 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 uh, there's a there's a pocket discrepancy and um, and I'm the kind of person that you know I'll I'll look I'll work with it for a while and just let it let it see if organically it will settle down and then if it doesn't you know I'll start addressing it you know uh, openly or, or or you know well you generally I would talk about the, it, the problem I that I as I see it with the person but. Um, so far, I've never experienced uh, addressing that as an issue, agreeing that it's an issue, and having it work out. I did having it get noticeably better. It, it's like I said. I think it's. It's actually. It seems to be to be something in someone's makeup, not in their head, but in their in their. DNA or there so uh, that sounds corny but no I know I know I mean it, this is really I think you did your brother did you used to talk about this with your brother too because what you're really saying is don't waste any don't waste your time you know I mean it, well it, it depends on first of all it depends on how how bad it is how big the discrepancy <laughs> you know yeah, I yeah, mean yeah. it really does depend on how big the discrepancy is um uh how much you're getting paid to do it is a factor <laughs> you know I mean Let's face it, you know, it's, it's work, too. Um, it's true. So it's, it's not, you know, all of this that we talk about is not strictly artistic uh, considerations. Um, you know, in a perfect world, maybe, in my, in, in my perfect world it might be, but that's not. And so, uh, you know, if it's a great gig, and you, but you're having a hard, you're having to struggle with this, this pocket issue, you know, you might just keep your mouth shut and do the best you can, meeting, you know, kind of being a clutch being in the middle and you just kind of be trying your best to sew it together you know which is really i think a, a major role of a bassist in a in a in a in a group is kind of stitching it all together between the 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 drums and the and the and the melodic and chord instruments uh, you've already but, you've already the pocket discrepancy that that is theory based right there i mean it's unbelievable that you could bring. Yeah. I mean, did you you the other thing I, I transcribed from you last night? You you were you love being part of a team, the team mm-hmm. concept, and I couldn't mm-hmm. think of a of a lesser time in our society when our country, uh, Americans are totally divided as uh, no teamwork involved, no compromise yeah. at all, and yeah. uh, I just wonder where that got instilled. If you could give an example early in your life, how your mom and dad, or even your brother. I mean, it, maybe it was built in genetically, but uh, I hear you. How you loved, how you learned to love the team concept, family. I I think that I'd have this. The first word that comes to my mind is I do have a love of family. Yeah. Um. Uh. My family's gotten really small. I've lost most most of my family, but um. Um. But. And what does I that? What does that mean? What does that? What does family mean to you? Well, family is. Um, oh boy, Jake, that's a hard one. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the welcome to the Jake fine. No, I'm just saying, you know, family could for some people, family is. I'm the father. I work six a.m. to eleven p.m. Um, mm-hmm. I have no response. I make money, and that's good. Other people, I know, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> it's about yo. Let's let's uh, let's get together and, and have a jam session, or you know, uh, let's go. Whatever. Everybody has their own. Uh, and some families have huge bonds. Some people, yeah, yeah. You know, the grandparents live close. Some people are all disparate all over the place. I guess the point is this, that I see a break. What you said is profound because even though it was the first word that came to your mouth, I mean, we are having in this society now a profound <clears throat> a f- profound breakdown of the nuclear structure of the family. I and mean, it's like 50% yep. divorce right now. So you're talking about broken families, but your family was not. Yeah, yeah. Your family maybe. Every family is a little bit dysfunctional, but it was it was together, right? I mean, you guys, right, right. did you do everything as a family? Well, let's get let's to, to the to, back to the the, the initial the, the the pure form of your question. Yeah. I if I had to take but the, the family to my my concept of family, I think you could wrap it up in a, in a few words: just uh, uh, loyalty, um, dedication, trust. Perseverance, um, uh, yeah, the, 
loyalty is it, loyalty. I think is is the, the first word that comes to my mind, and, and um, so so if I'm a band member, I I, I tend to be very loyal and um, and uh, and willing to try, you know, to to be persistent to to for for things to work out and for there to be harmony, and um, uh, I, I I listen. I don't. I try. I, I I talk too much. I think in general, you know. But I do make a, a, a conscious effort to to be a good listener. And back to that word. But um, so those I think are the qualities that 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 to me make a good family member. What makes a family a good family is I I, I so, so hard to say. So many different combinations of things, but. But I do think you have to be dedicated and, and loyal uh, to be a good family member and be persistent because somebody, you know when it's when things are tough you have to stick with it. Could you, you don't just walk away. You don't just walk away. Could you so. could you uh, give an example from your upbringing of, of loyalty and not walking away when something was clearly hard and easily quittable and and you're... well, I've seen my you know like anybody I've so I've seen my parents have their struggles and, and, uh, but the, 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 but they never broke up. Right. Right. So I did there you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. so, uh, just for the record, it's been glor it, it's been documented, but, uh, we can't document it enough because people are finding their own tr- reality based in society. Now their own truths and, uh, Mario Chiquina, mm-hmm. Uh, had a, a, de- a wonderful collaboration with uh, the drummer Tony Williams, and I wanted to read you uh, something from uh, my third interview with Stanley Clark, and then I just want you to just, I want your opinion on it. Uh, oh, please, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, he goes, uh, the, the, the title of this excerpt is Be Stronger Than Me by Stanley Clark. Be to- Stronger Than What? Be Stronger Than Me, okay? Okay. Tony Williams, oh. quoting, quoting Stanley Clark, Stanley Clark. Tony Williams really helped me a lot because Tony used to give me pointers based on his experience with Ron Carter. Ron Carter, hands down for me, is the greatest bass player ever. So I would listen to Tony Williams and Tony said, you know, Ron would do this like this and Ron would do. And I remember the best thing that Tony ever said was Ron was like a tree in the Miles Davis band. You might think it was Herbie Hancock or this person, but the guy that really held everything together was Ron Carter. And when I go back and listen to those records, I hear it because he was like a tree, like an oak. He didn't move. And so I kind of based my style on that. I'd focus. And Tony was saying, do that. Be that way. Basically, he was saying, be strong, you know. And that was a very cool thing. And you're not used to hearing that from another person, you know, be strong. You have to be pretty confident in yourself to tell another person that you're working with to be strong. And in many ways, be stronger than me. You have to understand yeah. product, you know. And here's the point yeah. is that going back to the loyalty thing, it's like Tony was secure enough with himself to say, Stanley, be stronger than me. I'm not afraid of that. Be stronger. Yeah. I mean, wow. can you riff on that? I mean, can you? Can, does that well, really? Yeah. <laughs> Jake, I got to, I'm just going to butt here. I am. I listen and now I want to throw something at you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't figure out why Tony Williams sought me out to play bass with him. We were from completely different worlds. I was not a name anyone would ever have heard in his circles. Uh, um, and it always kind of bothered me why he chose me. He could have had anybody to play with him. And, and, um, and uh, in fact, you know, when I, we did the Tokyo Jazz Festival, they, they called it that show "Live Under the Sky." We we did. There was a Tony Williams night in Tokyo, uh, out, out of a five night uh, series. One of them was Ron Carter night, and one of them was uh, you know, a bunch of different guys. But the other one, well, Tony, was one of them. And um, they're, they're, they actually recorded the show. It was a release. The album was released in Japan. Never came out here. You can find it on the internet, but, um, but you know, Tony had all these chops, you know, and I'm not a chops player at all. I'm, I'm definitely more of a groove and parts guy. You know, I don't, I don't like soloing and everyone knows that. And, uh, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've been on stage and they say, okay, Hey Mario, take the solo. And I'll just shake my head. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
but but it's, I I I think I figured it out, and that's what Tony liked about. That's why he asked me to come play with him. Is that I was his tree for that period of time? Because you know I didn't have the chops to. I, I did not really qualify to be in in his band if if you were to look at it on the surface. But but um, but if you listen, you know, like for example, if you were to listen to, to any of the songs that we played that night, you can hear uh, Tony moving around the beat because he's he's so. His mind must be going a million miles an hour with all the different the ways that he can skirt around the the, the downbeat. I mean, he's a master of it, and and um, you know he always knew that no matter where he went, you know, you know Mario was going to be there doing what he does. And 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 I'm not it's not a stroke to me, but it actually was the answer to my question: Why would he have me? It's because. It, because he likes to have a tree. Beast. And I, yeah, I, that's I right. never, I never had heard that about. That I never heard that. I have not heard that interview with with Stanley. But I'll send, that, I'll send you really, the interview. Yeah, no, it was, it's, I, please. It, it was it, because you know it was. It's, I don't know if I told you this or not, but uh, um, th- because my tentacles are so far out on Facebook, uh, this independent filmmaker reached out to me in May and said, "Hey, you know, I've been reading your excerpts. I really dig your point of view." and uh, I think there's a couple of projects that you can help me with, so give me a call if you can. Uh, long and the short of it is that uh, we're doing a documentary, film documentary on Stan Getz. Okay. <laughs> okay. And and that and Stanley was talking about because there was a period of time with Stan when uh, when his rhythm section was Chick Corea, Stanley, and Tony Williams. And yeah, poor guy. <laughs> even Stan was like he'd he'd go over to Stanley. Uh, uh, Getz would go over to Clark and say, "Hey, man, this guy Tony's he's playing so fast, you know, and, and <laughs> on fire." And uh, I think Stanley uh, was relating it to that experience. But the truth is that I'm I'm you know because of that because of this uh, confluence of events, I had an opportunity to to do uh, an interview with Huey Lewis. Uh, t- typical Jake Feinberg interview where nothing, nothing, uh, su- you know, nothing pop based. It was all just taking Huey off into different portals. And oh, I got to hear that. Uh, <laughs> you're going to die. But but the point is that uh, uh, he talked about his dad was a was a big band jazz fanatic, and uh, they right. were they were at Zoot Sims's funeral, and at the time, uh, Getz Stan Getz was dating uh, John Walsh from America's Most Wanted. He was uh, dating his uh, sister. Jane Wall, and he went. He went up to uh, to Huey, and this is early, early news. This is like '84, like sports kind of area, and okay. uh, and he he walked up behind Huey at the funeral for Zoot, and he goes, "My girlfriend wants to eat your shorts," oh. <laughs> and then he said, uh, "And then Huey's like, uh, so." And then of course his dad was right next to him, and he said. Um, Stan said, "You know, I I can play your music too. You know, you want to you want to play together." And Huey's like, "Well, okay, that's great." And he and uh, so Stan walked away, and and Huey's dad looked at, at Huey and he said, "If you don't play with him, I'll never talk to you again." Yeah. <laughs> and he goes, that's great. "And and but then ultimately, uh, an, an, another world part two. Were you on that cut with Stan? Were you in the band at that point? Because Stan eventually, yeah. Went, yeah. I mean, do, do you remember? Do you remember him coming into the studio and that stuff?" Yeah, I made all the albums with the, with the news. We we um, yeah, I was there. I was there for the session and the video shoot, which was fun. There's a video. Of I don't know, have you seen that? Have you seen the video of Small World? Uh, you guys, you got to you got to see it, Jake. It's a trip. Because, I don't because I, mean, I got to see it. I haven't seen it. <laughs> you got to see it. It's so cool. We actually got got uh, Stan to to lip sync some of a few of the lead vocal lines. So in the end of the song, as it's riding out, you see. You see, Stan gets he switch. It, it switches from him playing sax to him lead singing, it's, and, oh. and you kind of co- coaching him. It's fun. It's great. Oh so my funny. gotta see that. No, yeah, it's, it's I mean, really fun. You know, to me, I just I wonder about the more and more I talk. I mean, I've talked to four dozen cats, everyone from Lalo Schifrin, now you dropping that, and uh, people like you know Johnny Mandel, who you know Stan was the first guy to cover his tunes. He was so melodic, but he was old school improviser in the sense that if he didn't hear if he didn't hear it he wasn't going to play 
Okay, yeah. Me- meaning that you know what I'm, you know, like where you were saying before, there's this propensity now for these technicians and this sort of spast- spastic effort to show off monster chops, and there's no space right. where Stan would right. just let the rhythm section come in and accentuate and maybe come up with a new idea. Do you try to mm-hmm. do you try to get at those old school? improvisatory techniques with bands that you're in where i mean not you per se but i mean i get i go back to this be stronger than me the idea of taking Mm -hmm. a a younger cat and saying listen man if you don't hear it you don't have to play like you can let you can let us either finish an idea or start a new one i mean do you you, yeah you find yourself doing well i think i think i think my version of that with uh, recording a you know quote-unquote pop song or whatever would be um <clears throat> i try i don't try to see how i can be heard on a track i am always thinking about what's the best thing for the song you know what 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 does the song want what does the song need how can i help the song be more uh true how, that's that's all whereas a lot of people are trying to think how can i get myself heard in this track the, um, that's not my my primary goal. My primary my primary goal is to help the song live. That's it. Sir, serve the song. It's about well, in in that instance, yeah, it's about the song. If, when I'm recording a a, a a pop song or you know just a song, if it's a song, it means they're singing, which means there are, are words, which means there's a message. And, you know, the first thing I think is how make sure I'm not getting in the way of that. I'm not getting in the way of the melody. I'm not getting in the way of the point being made. And then, uh, two, what could I do to help that song be heard? What could I do to help that song live its best little life, you know? So there's a combination. One of them is not detracting from it, for, for sure. And then, two, is how is there, what could I do to help the song breathe and live as that may seem esoteric but no i mean it's it's, I it's 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 a selfless individual mario cipollina i mean this to me is like can we just go back can you talk about um this the band that you the last time we talked you were talking about uh the the, the true summer of love which was 1966 and uh, yeah. the band that you were in at the time is that's what that was the, the attitude that you were trying to come up that you were trying to it was that kind of attitude on the bandstand and I'm just curious about how that's how that's uh, developed over time because you know I mean well, yeah. go ahead well, it developed a lot because it, you know initially my earlier bands <laughs> when I was a kid um. I didn't, it wasn't, you know, I was, I was learning to play and I wanted, I wanted to make parts that were challenging. So I don't think I wasn't, I wasn't really that aware of, of, uh, the life of a song. And, uh, I was thinking more about, you know, um, how good the pot was and stuff like that. And, and I was thinking about, uh, how, how, uh, uh you know, what, how, how, how can this song work for me to to play better? Or, you know, so it was definitely much more, much less selfless. You know, if you listen to any of my early, you know, like Soundhole or any of that kind of early stuff, which I don't know how you'd ever find it, but but um, I, I played a lot more notes, and um, and um, I was not. As much of nearly as much of a pocket player as I am now, and so my goals were different. I, I, not that I knew thought of them as goals at the time, but but if there was a, uh, it, it wasn't so much showing off, but I I wanted to see what I could do. I wanted to see what 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 I was capable of. Yeah. Was it because so. of? Uh... Uh, <clears throat> most of the bands that you were working in were adults and you were, you felt pressure to show them that you could, that you belonged. Well, in those, in, in those instances, when I was, when I was working with, with other bands, I, 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 I don't, I, that, what I just said is not a statement towards that okay. more towards, towards my own bands. Sure. My, my bands with my peers, the, the guys I was playing with then, which one of which was Bill Gibson. And because uh, we started playing together when I was fifteen, but um, so when I was playing with like Stone Ground or or 
one of my brother's bands or whoever, Van Morrison, for example, I was much more preoccupied with doing a, uh, doing uh, the 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 best work for 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 the you know call it a client. I didn't think of it as that at the time, but for the for the the band leader or whoever whoever's stuff it was. But but with my own bands, I I was more preoccupied. I think with uh, with learning more about how what I could was could do. So in other words, the my bands I played more 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 notes, and I was not so reverent for the space. And when I was working with uh, uh, other people, usually older, a lot older than me, I uh, I think I was trying to make sure I didn't stand out too much because I was I didn't want everyone to notice. Hey, I've got this kid in my band. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, you just sort of hope that people would notice. Just play your part, and, right? Yeah, absolutely. I did. Yeah. What what bands were? I mean, aside from your brother, uh, what bands were you the youngest in? All of them. <laughs> good answer even the symphonic band that started that when the when the the conductor's baton started to look like a fan blade because of, of yep. always yep, the i was the i was always the youngest and now i'm always the oldest right right well it's funny how those things work I, you know i was i want i think one of the one of the coolest uh musical relationships even though they they didn't have a huge i could be wrong about this but i just was hoping you could talk about the relationship that that your brother had with with Jerry Garcia and, and also the, your relationship with Jerry as well because there's mm-hmm. kind of like uh, this sort of interesting thing in like 1983 which was really the you know Reagan was on his way to his reelection um, mm-hmm. a lot of that era that we have been focusing on that you've been trying to channel that late 60s period was clearly uh, being punctured and deflated and and i just i remember there was a show from the greek theater and and your brother came out on stage next to jerry and and not too soon after that he your brother passed away but you you're i think your brother was a huge inspiration to jerry am i right about yeah, it i think so too can you yeah, i think so too i think mean, i think he was an inspiration to a lot of guitarists yeah but i mean but, well, go ahead, no i just i guess how um how did they did they? Did they? I mean, they obviously crossed paths, but did they have a? Uh, did they? Did, did was Jerry somebody that would show up at the house? Did you guys used to? I mean, how close was was your brother and Jerry? Yeah, the, no, they they didn't. There wasn't uh, you know a buddy buddy like you know fall by the house hang out all uh, together all the time. But there was it was a, definitely a mutual respect thing. Yeah, and they they <clears throat> when when both of the bands those bands were starting, um, they just happened to end up living next to each other. Well, first of all, they lived in the, in the hate and then they ended up, um, in 65 or six, they Quicksilver had a, lived on a ranch together out in Olima. Wow. Olima is West Marin and, uh, it's very a country living out there, ranch land. And it just so happened that the Grateful Dead had a ranch lived on a ranch next to the ranch that the Quicksilver guys lived on. So they were, they were next door neighbors, you know, with probably 20 acres in between them, but they were next door neighbors. And they used to have, uh, uh, so the back that in that, in that time from the stories I've heard, it was like two, uh, two, 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 Cowboys and the Grateful Dead guys were always the Indians, and they would actually go out and have like mock battles out in the in the fields and stuff. And um, point being, they were neighborly. It was like neighborly uh, uh, mutual respect, mutual admiration societies. And uh, so it wasn't so much that they they hung out on a daily basis, but they, they there was a a, a distinct. Uh, mutual appreciation and, uh, between my brother and Jerry and probably other guys in the band too but um, you know John really respected and admired Jerry's playing and obviously Jerry did because 
later on when when John was no longer a band member, you know, kind of lost his band, um, the dead guys always made a point of including him, which I thought was so great, really. Very, uh, really, in hindsight, just touching as hell. That so they touching, seek him. So touching, because they... Yeah, isn't, isn't it? I think it's so freaking cool, because you know what? Yeah. They recognized who they... They never forgot who inspired them. As much as... Yeah. I mean, I think your brother... It's possible... Like, Neil Cassidy was a major influence to, to the dead. And I think your brother was in a different way. Uh, because here's the thing. I just did two two interviews with, uh, you know, the legendary new rider, David Nelson... And he talked. Uh-huh. He literally talked about. I think also your. I think the dead saw that your brother had monster stones because these guys. I, I, and I, you can correct the record. You may not totally remember from '65, but Nelson was saying when Jerry Jerry would take so much flack from producers to say or people saying, "Hey, you know, we're gonna you're gonna make more money. Can you just play this cover tune? Can you can you play this? The, the audience will recognize this. Don't, you know." And he'd say, "Ah." What, what what is it good for you know like right, they, right, ultimately right. it was like they they started playing for go-go dancers and then ultimately they'd play one song that would become very improvisational and very stretched out and then eventually when they got to the Fillmore they started to do that a lot and what Nelson was saying was he would sit behind the drums he would sit behind the amps or, or the and, and he would and the audience would leave in droves and he would he would look to people and say, "Look, they're leaving in droves." But he said, "What courage for Garcia to do that?" And I think your brother did it too. I think your brother. I I just I very much believe that these guys created a, something that was it was completely new. There was no. I, and, and I want you to riff on. You know better than me. But I mean, the fact that your brother there were I guarantee that there were gigs that Jerry and your brother looked at each other and said, "Eh." We're doing, we're doing, yeah. we're doing it. We're doing what we need to do. I mean, I don't care if everybody left, you know? <laughs> That's great, Jake. Great. That's a great awareness. That's so, so true. Yeah. And, 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 and with John, but you, you could add to that, that he loved, he loved to, to uh, he loved volume. And I, unfortunately I have the same, <laughs> we same makeup. I'm definitely post because of it, but, but, <laughs> but how many people do you think just finally just, just in it out of sheer suffering had to walk away from the front of the stage where John was playing because of the damn amp stack that he used. <laughs> no, I'm you know, <laughs> that yeah, thing no, was deadly. Uh, it, was de- it was deadly. I, I mean, I just, and, I mean, just put me, I mean, I, I would have been marinating in it, but a lot of cats probably freaked out, freaked out. Oh, man, it was, it was harsh. What did that? Can yeah, you, I mean, can you paint the picture of what that rig looked like? Sure, I know exactly. Um, so, so, but with John had the first triamp guitar set. I don't, I don't know if anyone to this day has a triamp guitar setup where you have a dedicated set of amps and speakers for each frequency range. So John had uh, for the low frequencies, he had two Standell Imperials which are uh, not extremely powerful, but for the time they were, and they were also, importantly, they were solid-state amps. Solid-state is a, a much faster reacting to transients. And um, so, so we had four 15-inch speakers for the low, and probably five or 800 watts for the low frequencies. And then he had a, a twin reverb on top of that, which is a Two twelve, and that twelve inch speakers, and that has a is a two a couple hundred watts there, and that was for his mid range, and then for the high frequencies he had a uh, uh, a dual showman amp top, which is just the amp without speakers, uh, hot rodded also by Healy that put out another couple hundred watts, and that powered uh, six Wurlitzer high frequency drivers with trombone bells attached to them. So on the top there were, there were six, uh, they looked like trumpet bells, but actually they were trombone bells. Uh, and, and John had, um, he had a, uh, he also was the first person to, to have a pedal board. He had, he made it, for him. it was a, a big, you know, it's at the hall of fame. I don't know if you've seen pictures of John's rig at the hall of fame, but you can see his pedal board there. And it was a big, uh, aluminum, 
box that sat on the floor with, uh, I think it had five or six button push buttons on it that you could step on with your foot. And above each switch, there was a, a light, and the lights were actually uh, tail lamps off of a 34 Ford. And... <laughs> Yeah, and 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 wait, hold on. The, I want to be clear. Butt- I just want to. You're saying he was like, uh, out of all the classic uh, cats, he was the first to have a pedal board. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. That, this is so great. Okay. Continue, please. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, on the right, the right hand button. Yeah, because he had that in '67, '66, maybe '67 at the latest. And on the the right button, the, the all the all the lights were a different color, you know, for each button, so he could see from a from a distance what what was activated and what was was not activated. And the right one, the color of that light was red, and the, the <laughs> that was the one that turned the horns on. <laughs> yeah. So he when he would hit that thing, this two hundred watts going through these high frequency horn, uh, drivers with the trump trombone bells. And it would just go from painful to uh, life-altering. You know, I mean, really, just scary. Maybe that's scary why. Loud. Maybe that's why uh, Elmore had to just focus on something. <laughs> maybe just to keep himself straight. Dude. That's well. He's probably he was probably just thinking, God, I'm glad those things aren't aiming at me. <laughs> you know, um, we're cooking here uh, uh, as we wrap up set two here with Mario Cipollina. Um I've been kind of obsessed asking people about this idea when you play within a collective group of improvisers and everybody's on the same page, how, I mean, I look at today when I go see a generic rock concert or, you know, some kind of very formulaic show, it's everything is in four, four time and everybody is very, very conscious of where the one is. And it's oh, yeah. it's kind of stilted, it's kind of stunted, and I and I want to talk to you, somebody who was just in and around this whole mere period of, well, let's just take off and see where it goes. Can you just talk about your concept of the idea that when you're on the same page, <clears throat> that any note can be the one that ultimately it'll yeah. all come back around again? Can you talk about a musical experience where you? really where where that where you where you got that concept and it liberated you yeah sure yeah well first i want to comment on something you just said which is you you brought up concerts today yeah well one thing i got to point out is that concerts today are programmed right you know uh everything is programmed because for the most part i mean so so the bands have to to work around the fact that the technicians are all working off of equipment that works by time code. I don't know if you're aware of that, but and maybe a lot of people may not be. Wait, I, we need but, we need to talk. I I I need to. This is really important. Actually, we'll save the one thing for next time. Rip yeah, on. we don't have to dwell on it. But my my no, my I want to. Dwell, this was, is important. Yeah, it is important because because you know. Uh, uh, set, you don't you don't you can't get on the stage today. Uh, easily and and change the set order because all the technicians all the equipment is all is all geared for you know you give a set list to the technicians and they program and they set their gear for this song to be followed by that song because the, because the lighting cues are computerized um, <clears throat> set, the sound equipment the, the PA stuff is is a, a lot of it is run by computer and 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 big big changes occur from song to song that that no one person could possibly make those changes in in that amount of time so computers are used and which means that you can't you can't be you can't have this feeling that you you know you really another song would be better for this moment in the show and change that you can't do it because the the, the, the whole the whole the technical rig would fall apart because no one could this <laughs> you it, it just doesn't happen. I, People I'm don't really, make those. This is fascinating. I mean, I don't. You're telling me at every there are bands, even the the bands that have total street cred, they're still hooked up on the on the on the on the computer. They can't break it. Bands with street cred. Well, we're talking different shows. We, we, we're, we're talking concerts. I'm when you say concert, I'm ta- I'm thinking concert like like uh, 
large theaters up to arenas. Sure. So anybody who's playing those places, you know, well, look at, look, take a walk backstage. Look at what kind of gear they have. It's computers. All that, all those banks of racks of, of things. It's not just power amps. You know, a lot of it's computers. And, um, uh, you know, garbage in, garbage out. Those computers need to know what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, right. So you, so, so, uh, no, no, bands with street cred that are playing like uh, theaters and smaller uh, may not use that many computers, although many to, I would say many to most bands even doing smaller places are using computers. Um, the guy at the bar down the street is not is not encumbered that way. However, I've seen many, many bands playing bars that are using computers and, and, and really can't change song orders without causing a problem one way or another with the, the computer setup. It's, 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 it's very, very, very common and, 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 uh, computers are, yeah. Well, we're, we're talking to, I mean, clearly he doesn't think he is, but he is a sage. Uh, this is really fast. You have been on fire. I'd say the last 25 minutes just, it's, I mean, it's amazing technology, the way your brother used it versus how technology is confining music today is fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it is really yeah, yeah. fascinating. And we have uh, reached the end of set two, Mario. So oh my God, I just looked at my watch. I had no idea. We burned we're through. Done. Yeah, well, we're, we're not done though. So uh, <laughs> listen, man, uh, We'll uh, I'll hit you up later, but uh, much love to you, brother. It was always good to, Jake. Good to hear you. Yeah, let's talk later today if you have any time. I'll, I'll, call, I'll call you soon. Yeah, we'll do it. All right. All right, Thanks. Yeah, Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Okay, later. cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, a couple of monster bass players, a younger cat, O'Teal Burbridge, who is uh, a uh, declare, he declared himself a radical today, uh, which is fascinating, and I love it. And uh, in his own mind, uh, another cat uh, who continues to uh, increase vocabulary of melodic improvisation, a dear person, great human being, Mario Cipollina. Uh, very exciting show, and uh, we got another. I'll be in next week for Thanksgiving. Uh, uh, much love to everybody, uh, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. Peace. I've been playing blues for quite a while. I've been around the world a few times, but I don't understand. I just like to play the blues. It's not all the money that I want. I just like to play the blues. You're a gig.